This is episode number two with Armin Shimmerman. Coming up. After I moved to California from New York, that it, it was terrifying for me to go to auditions. Even if you don't get something, it doesn't mean that the opportunity is over. It only means it may be postponed. It decimated my plans to be a Shakespearean actor, but because I made that huge mistake, it took me to New York, where much better things happened, including my meeting of Kitty. All I knew was, I don't know what's going to happen. I know I have to climb this mountain, but I don't know how far I get. I don't know if I'll fall off the mountain, but I know I have to do it, but it's still daunting. And am I then a man to be beloved? Ah! Hey there, thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to The Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for 30, 40, 50 plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Just so you know, there's going to be about 10 episodes for the first season of this podcast. Another reason I'm really excited about this show is because these are stories you probably don't already know. The people that I will be talking to, you may recognize them, either their voice from something you've heard or a video game, or maybe you've seen them on TV or in a movie or maybe even something on stage. These are amazing actors in their own right, and they've been doing this for decades. And when I talked to younger actors and people starting their career about what they wanted, what they most hoped to attain in their own career, one phrase that came up again and again is working actor. Most actors that I talk to just want the opportunity to be able to work, to keep doing this, to work with great people on fun and challenging material and to get paid for it. That really is the dream. I mean, of course, a lot of people have big ideas and, you know, would love to do X, Y, or Z, and that's all well and good. But really, when it comes down to it, most people, whatever their passion is, and in this case, acting, you just want to be able to get paid to do what you love. And so these are people that have made that their career. I think these are going to be stories that are extremely relevant for you listening. If you are an aspiring actor or you're a working actor at the beginning of your career and you want to find out, you know, what have other people that have already kind of gone down this road, what have they figured out? Maybe what can I avoid? What can I try to do more of? That, again, is another one of the big goals of this show. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agan. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California, done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur, work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. 
I feel extremely fortunate about the people I've worked with, the people I have been taught by, and the people I've just been able to observe. And I want to do what I can to share the wisdom and experiences of all of these amazing, fantastic working actors out there. I want to do what I can to share that and allow more actors out there the opportunity to really learn from these greats. So I imagine that there will be at least three kind of audiences for this show. First is people in their 20s or 30s or people just starting their career if later in life you've decided this is something you want to pursue and you want to shorten that learning curve. This is absolutely something that I hope will be valuable in your acting journey. And so I'm really thrilled that if you're part of that group that you're listening to the show, Secondly, maybe you just enjoy behind-the-scenes stuff with actors. Uh, you know, perhaps you recognize someone's name or face and you just want to hear more about their process, their journey, and I'm glad that you're listening too. And third, if you just enjoy long-form chats with interesting people that have had fascinating journeys and lives, then I'm really thrilled that you're here too. So that's the show in a nutshell. Those are the goals. That's what I'm hoping to do here. I am really grateful for you listening. And again, whatever group you fall in, wherever you are in your life, I am thrilled that this can become part of your journey. In the acting business and in life, there is so much uncertainty and vulnerability and rejection. Wouldn't it be nice as an actor if you could find a little bit of peace in the process? Back in 2010, I found something that really helped me out with a lot of the anxiety and worry, and that is meditation. I really wish I had known about this when I was pursuing a career in acting in Los Angeles. Now, fast forward to today, I haven't missed a day of meditating in seven years. I find it that useful. And that's also why I created a free online course delivered by email. So you can go to freemeditationcourse.com and sign up right now. It has tips and ideas and advice and scientific evidence because it has been proven it's good for you. You can start with just 30 seconds. I guarantee you will experience a difference. Go to freemeditationcourse.com and start your journey right now. Today on the show is Armin Shimmerman, and he is probably best known to audiences for playing Quark on the Star Trek Deep Space Nine television series for about six years. I met Armin in the early 2000s, probably when I was taking classes at the Antius Company. I would guess that's how we first connected him coming in to teach Shakespeare for a night or something. And over the years, I got to work with Armin in a lot of different capacities when he was directing, when we were fellow actors, when he was teaching. And he's always been just a very giving and very kind and very unassuming and really wonderful person and teacher and friend. And so I knew when I was doing this project, I wanted to reach out to Armin. And even with his really demanding schedule of work and teaching, we were able to find some time together. And so I'm thrilled that we were able to do that. In fact, I remember actually after a few years that I had been at Antius, Armin was doing some kind of class, maybe like a master class on Shakespeare. And I don't know if it was monologue specifically, but I remember him working on a piece, talking to us about it. Uh, it was from Richard II, and he showed us 
how there was really kind of a legal structure. And we actually talk about this in the conversation today, but he really broke it down with, you know, the premise and the evidence and the conclusion. And it just was that cliched moment of a light bulb going off of, oh my God, I can really see this in the structure of the piece. And then when we started looking at other monologues, you could see that same structure. And it was just that switch kind of going off for me of, oh, okay, I really get this now on another level. I really had not seen that. And with Armin's help, I'm now seeing these monologues and pieces in a completely different light. It was just amazing. And I still remember that evening, how much it changed how I looked at Shakespeare. So Armin was born in New Jersey, and he did a little bit of crisscrossing in his career, started on the East Coast, came out for school on the West Coast, went back to New York for Broadway, and then came back out to L.A. to work in film and TV. But he's been working 50 years in the business. He has nearly 200 credits on IMDb with four projects in post-production. He's done long-running recurring characters on the shows Beauty and the Beast, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Boston Legal. He voices Dr. Nefarious in the video game Ratchet and Clank, as well as doing many other voiceovers and video game characters and commercials. He is a Shakespeare scholar and teacher and director and actor. In recent years, he has played King Lear's Fool at the Guthrie in Minnesota and as Leo Tolstoy in the play Discord. He also won an award for his stage performance in The Seafarer. Armin is also a writer, and he's written a few novels in the Merchant Prince series, which has kind of a sci-fi and renaissance twist to them. In today's conversation, we talk about him finding acting in high school and how that developed, him studying and working at the Old Globe in San Diego, finding one of his mentors in a Broadway play, many of his ups and downs during his career, what he believes has kept him working all these years, and we are even treated to some of Armin's Shakespeare with Richard of Gloucester. There's a lot in here. It was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate how open and honest Armin was here, and I am excited to share this conversation with you, so please enjoy my chat with Armin Shimmerman. When they heard her, they said, boy, that's good. Can you help us with the other actors? <laughs> oh, cool. And she, she got hired to do that as well. It's a, it's a tricky accent or, or just, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call it an accent or a regional dialect. I mean, but it's a, a very, it's such a unique one in the U.S. as well. Yeah, it's a combination of, uh, of course, French and, and some Brooklyn, actually, or Italian, probably more than Brooklyn, and, um, and of course, Southern. Uh, they, they all... And, and there are different uh, Cajun accents depending on which part of Louisiana you're from. Um, and uh, she's actually able to, to differentiate at least three that she's told me about. So she's very good at it. That's pretty cool. Are you? Are there any particular accents that you are, you know, like Kitty, like very Oh, I do a lot at? of accents. Yeah. I, I do a lot of accents. My voiceover career is uh, is really based, not based on accents, but many times I get auditions because they ask me to do a German accent or a Swedish accent or a French accent or Irish accent, lots of British accents. Um, and um, on occasion, that's what I do. I, I, I record uh, in a 
in a foreign dialect. And and was that something that came, the accent work came as just a product of you wanting to learn it as an actor, or did you have an ear for it, uh, you know, when you were younger? I think I had an ear for it. I grew up in a household where people had different accents, so um, I think I had an ear for it. Um, when I started working in the theater in New York, um, they asked us for the regular ones, the English and the Irish and um, so that came about, and then I I just was pretty good at picking up accents and hearing that. I, I've I've done plays where I've had to use accents, Irish accent. Uh, once I had to do a South America South a- African accent. Um, don't know if I was that successful with the South African one, um, but I I do do that, and um, it is part of my bag of tricks. Well, you know, I was actually in in doing a little research. I. I I had never played the game, but I came across a clip from the the Ratchet and Clank series. And, you know, I mean, it it really did kind of spark a question of like, uh, the character is uh, what, Dr. Nefarious, right? Dr. Nefarious, yeah. And, you know, it it just, I'm so um, fascinated by the voices that a lot of, you know, voice actors come up with. And, I mean, was that something that you kind of had had in the back of your mind somewhere else that you had developed along the way? Or how do you, how did that voice come I think it just showed up? up at the audition. Oh, really? Uh, and then, unfortunately, that's the one they chose. <laughs> unfortunately, only because I've done about, I'd say, five or six Ratchet and Clank games, as well as a movie. And uh, it's a very hard one on my voice. After about a half hour, my throat is is trashed. But it it just came up, I... I you know, you when you do an audition, you just you for me anyway, uh, something just comes out of inspiration, and you do it, and you hope that that's what they're looking for. And occasionally they'll refine it. They'll say, "Can you go higher? Can you go lower? Can you, um, you know, try something different?" And uh, you sh- in in that particular field, because the people are so good, and I'm not very good at it. Um, I'm a dilettante compared to the experts, the brilliantly talented people who work in that field. So I I have to uh, run three times as hard to keep up with my fellow actors. Now, uh, (laughs) I think think this is you being quite modest because, you know, I mean... No, no, it's not. (laughs) I I can be modest, but this is the truth. Uh, All right. uh, When I'm in sessions with other voiceover actors, I am in awe of what they're capable of doing. I cannot do that. I'm an actor who does voiceover work. I'm not a voiceover actor per se. Mm. Um, but but uh, no, I'm not being humble. I can be humble, but this is not me being humble. Those guys are incredible, and they spend their lives perfecting voices, sounds, um, all sorts of things, and they can turn them on in a moment's notice. I am limited to, I don't know, uh, if I had to guess, I would say about two dozen maybe sounds or voices or accents. And, um, but, but the people that I work with can do hundreds, hundreds, mm. and that's not over-exaggerating. Well, you brought up the point, you said you, you grew up in a, uh, in a household or, or, you know, around a lot of different, you know, voices and, and things like that. So, um, I wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. So where, where did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in the middle of New Jersey, a little town called Lakewood, um, which is outside of Vasbury Park. Uh, it's, it's, uh, inland a little from where Hurricane Sandy hit. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was an immigrant from, uh, originally from, from Poland. Uh, then he immigrated to Palestine. It wasn't Israel yet. And, uh, and then at just at the time that, uh, Israel became a state in the late forties, uh, my father, uh, 
followed his family to the United States. Um, and so uh, I grew up with that. My, uh, my parents got divorced when I was seven and my grandmother, um, she was a Russian immigrant. So, uh, now I was no longer listening to a Polish accent. I was now listening to a Russian accent. And, uh, my mother was the, the daughter of, of two, um, Russian emigres. She did not have an accent except she, well, she did have an accent. We all have accents. She had what she had a Cleveland accent, which is rather nasal. And uh, so, as I said, I grew up in a household with many accents. And and so, what kind of work did your parents do? My father, when I was a child, uh, was a farmer, but that was temporary work. He was by profession. He uh, he painted houses in Palestine, then in New Jersey, where I was born, then in Cleveland, where he moved to after my parents got divorced. And then back to, to New Jersey again when he moved back. Uh, just about the time that um, I moved to California, he moved to to New Jersey. Oh, okay, so you were you were living primarily with your your mom after the divorce. Yeah, my mom and my grandmother. Oh, okay, and uh, so what kind of what kind of household was it with your mom? Was it a very like artistic household or food based household? No, there I mean, was no there was no artistic uh, input whatsoever. Except my grandmother was very dramatic, but it had nothing to do with theater. She was just a very dramatic lady, being Russian. Um, my mother and my grandmother were extremely poor. Um, so I grew up in a very poor household. Um, in fact, most of the time my mother wasn't home. She had uh, two or three jobs that uh, kept her busy all the time. My grandmother was the titular head of the, of the family. And, and so my brother and I, um, uh, spent most of our time with her, although any chance we could get, we got out of the house. <laughs> and, uh, what kind of things would you guys get into? No, we lived in a wonderfully rural area in New Jersey. A little town of Lakewood, where I'm from, was enormously pastoral, um, and uh, it, it, it's in the middle of the Pine Barrens. So we we would we would play in the amongst the the little forests of, that were around, and there was a huge lake. That's why it's called Lakewood. And so we would paddle in the lake, or or that would be in the summer, of course, or ice skate in the winter. Um, it was an enormously rich and gentle childhood, and I'm very grateful that uh, for that. Um, things changed when, at 17, I moved to Santa Monica, but uh, um, but, but but my childhood was a, was a really good one. Although at the time I wasn't aware how poor my family was. Later on, when I look back, I went, "Wow, how did we survive?" But but it was I knew nothing about that and it was just perfect in the beginning. So when you moved, uh, you moved while you're in high school out to California. Was that was that like kind of just a family decision? Well, my my mother did a very heroic thing. Um, she did many heroic things, but but uh, this was perhaps the most heroic. Um, I was a sophomore in high school, and my mother realized that uh, I had to go to college. She couldn't afford college. That was out of the question. And so she looked around and saw that if you were a California resident, you could go to the UC system for practically nothing. Um, And so uh, in order to get my residency, um, she moved all of us out to California um, and she found new work, new residents, uh, new friends. Um, she, she drove us in a small VW bug uh, from New Jersey to Santa Monica. 
um, did all the driving herself. Um, and that was, when I look back on that, that must have been a horrendous trip for her. All, among other things, everything was packed into the VW, so it was even hard seeing out the windows because there were bundles and luggage and people, and um, it was difficult. And uh, she she did all that for me, and I am enormously grateful. And did you grow up uh, an only child, or did you have brothers and sisters? No, I have a brother uh, who's younger than I am. He's two years younger than I am. His name is Mark, M-A-R-C. And what does uh, what kind of work does Mark do now? Uh, ironically, he works in outer space. Really? Uh, my, he worked. He's he's uh, he's retired now, but for the longest time, he helped put satellites up into space. Wow. I mean, from a young age, did you guys have that kind of difference? You being more artistically inclined, him being more scientifically inclined. He was never really scientifically. It's just where he worked. He wasn't an engineer. He was the next step down from an engineer. So what happened was um, my brother would get the plans from the engineers about how to make things, and then he would help make the designs for what the the people on the floor had to do as far as uh, construction. Um, uh, So, no, he, he was always more... Yes, uh, let me answer your first question. We there was a great divide between us. I was always very artistic, and uh, and had my book, head in books, and my brother was a much more um, uh, middle class sort of student, and uh, and I he his understanding of of math is probably better than mine, but but I wouldn't call him a scientist by any means. I don't think he'd take umbrage of that. Okay. So the the art the artistic stuff that started to show up with you was it was it theater first or was it painting or drawing? It was or? theater first. It was theater first. Um um I uh when I moved to Santa Monica, uh, lucky for me, I uh, was in an English class with a man named uh Jellison and uh, uh, Mr. Jellison and um he said to me, oh, I'm, I'm directing a play here at high school. Would, would you like to audition for the play? And I knew nobody. And he said, well, you, you'll be able to make friends if, if you're getting to the production. And that's what happened. I, I was cast as the lead in the production. And uh, I went on to do the next two um, high school plays. I, at that point, I was a senior. And... Um, when I went on to college, I had no, I had no real intention of of, of continuing my acting career. I, I I started out as a poli sci major, hoping to become a a lawyer, but um, but I kept getting cast in plays over and over and over again. Everyone should have my problems. And so by the time I graduated from from college, uh, it looked like that was the path I was going to take. And then I was enormously fortunate. Um, even before I graduated from college, I was offered a, a, a very nice position at the San Diego Shakespeare Festival at the Globe Theater, and um, the, and the rest is history. But my brother and I were were always very different. Uh, it, it, it was quite obvious, I think, to my brother that I was heading in one direction, and he did not want to compete in that arena. I see, and so, and and. Uh... And it's it probably you also weren't very interested in competing in his arena either. No, uh, but I, being older, had my sights sort of on on theater and and, and performance, uh, and I didn't really look back over my shoulder to see what my brother was doing. Um, but I'm 
I was always the older brother, and 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 if I can say this, um, I think he suffered to some small extent um, uh, living in my shadow. Hmm. Were, was that something you were aware of? You know, uh, younger. No, like not until school? much later. Oh, okay. No, no, not not until not until I had great success in the theater did I realize um, that my brother was even comparing uh, us. Um, he is um, he's an incredible uh, accomplished person um, and a much has a much bigger heart than I do. Um, and uh, I envy his um, his uh, his uh, acceptance of, of life. It's, it's really quite Zen like his acceptance of life. Is there kind of a, a personal philosophy you have, have you tried to like become more Buddhist or Zen about this profession or is it is it is it tough to do? No, no, no. No, if I don't know whether it's Buddhist or Zen like and I don't think it is, but my whole philosophy is is that I have always been lucky and I just let luck and fate do what it does. And for the most part, it smiles on me. So I just accept whatever the universe gives me. It, perhaps that's a, an, an Eastern way of looking at things, although I, I can't point to any definitive principles in that way. But the gods have always been good to me, and, and I just wait for their, uh, their raining nice things upon me. So have, have there been ever any times when you did ever really pursue something that you really went after a role or, or a project? Well, ironically, the one project that I, I really did pursue and, and then got was the, uh, the character of Quark on Deep Space Nine. Um, when I heard that Deep Space Nine was uh, looking to have a series regular that was a Ferengi, because I had played Ferengi before, I thought, yeah, well, it should be me. And, and I actively pursued it um, little knowing that uh, they were active, actively pursuing me, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, as I've gotten older and I see uh, certain plays happening around the country, sometimes I'll call my agent up and say, um, listen, I understand they're doing King Lear at the Guthrie. Um, uh, is it possible for me to audition, send in a tape uh, to uh, audition for this? And I've, and I've done that probably about a dozen times. Um, most of the time doesn't work out. Sometimes it does. So when you were actively pursuing Quark, so what did that look like for you, you know, different than just, you know, letting your agent know you're interested in this? Well, I kept pushing the agent. First of all, uh, I pushed them and almost immediately they were able to get me an audition and I auditioned. And then I, I kept pushing the agent to get feedback and or see if there's going to be a callback and for at least a month there, there was nothing and i kept pushing them i'd call them every other day any news any news no no news and we went through that for about a month um and i i was sort of heartbroken because i thought well if not me then who um and uh, eventually uh, six weeks after my first audition and and you know that's a long time for a callback Six weeks after my first audition, they called me back. And um, when I finished that, it took another week before they called me in for the, the third and last time. And um, and I, I did what I had to do, and they hired me. Now, I remember years ago you telling me a story. Um, 
of you were walking into an audition and you you tripped slightly on the carpet. Oh yeah, yeah. Was yeah. this was this for Cork? That was a some... commercial audition. Oh okay. For Sears, and uh, I tripped in the in the midst of the audition, and and that again is is proof positive that I just leave myself open to to either successes or mistakes. Um, my mistakes have almost sometimes been greater and, and more profitable than my successes. That was a mistake, uh, just a physical mistake. I tripped in the midst of the audition. This made the people who were casting, they told me later on, laugh. And, uh, and because they laughed, they thought, oh, he's the guy. Uh, nobody else would make them laugh. <laughs> uh, although the part wasn't, didn't call for anyone to make someone laugh. And uh, I, I just got cast, and they had seen, uh, they told me, dozens if not hundreds of people for the role. And and do you, th- I mean, do you think like on just some uh, subconscious level, they were looking for somebody that uh, was easy to work, or you know, was was either fun or or just relaxed? I don't know, Nathan. You have to ask. You have to ask them. Uh, one would assume that, but what they were looking for, they never explained to me. They just, I asked them, I think point blank, why did you choose me? And they said, because you made us laugh, you, you, you did something in your audition where you sort of looked like you tripped. And I thought to myself, I did trip <laughs> um, and uh, and never went any further with them because there's no point explaining that it wasn't purposeful. Of course. Um, and uh, but I never pressed it any further. All right. So so taking back to high school for uh, a minute, uh, do you remember the first play that you did that uh, the gentleman invited you to audition? Yeah, Santa Monica started was The Crucible. Oh, okay. I did the Crucible, and I got cast as John Proctor. And I remember in performance of, I think we only did it three times, but in one of the three performances, um, I got lost in the role. Uh, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, I went on stage and then came off stage and didn't remember Armin being on stage. I remembered being totally involved as John Proctor. And and that feeling was such a thrill, such an incredible roller coaster ride, a, a, a dazzling and exciting one that I thought, oh, I'd like, I'd like to do more of that. And, and one tries to get to that nirvana uh, in every performance. Unfortunately, I've come to learn that it's very rare when that happens. And so was that was that kind of a moment that really hooked you and, and made you feel like you'd need to keep doing more of this? Yes. Yes, exactly. That was exactly that. And also, people were being very kind about my abilities as an actor. And up until that time, I had a, a bad feeling about myself in the sense I was insecure. And when I stepped on stage and performed, I felt in total control and felt that I was fulfilling to the best of my ability whatever potential I had. And that was a great feeling as well. When I stepped off stage, I became Armin again, as opposed to being Armin in small letters, as opposed to being John Proctor in large caps. And um, when I realized that I could, that I could, I could be free, I could be heroic, I could be whatever I wanted on stage within reason. Um, I began to think I, I need to get back in that arena to do that more often, so that I feel better about myself and that I feel that I am contributing and, uh, and that I am, uh, of value. I think more than anything of value. And, you know, since this was, this was your first, you know, play full production. 
It wasn't my first, actually. My first was back in, in New Jersey, uh, and it was a production of uh, 12 Angry Men. Um, and the only reason I auditioned for The Crucible was because I had done 12 Angry Men. So it wasn't a totally new thing to go, oh, uh, I've never done this before. I, I don't think I will do it. But because I had done it one play anyway in, in, uh, in my freshman year in New Jersey, um, I had some background. But, but it was, you know, it, it wasn't an important thing. It was, it was just one of the things I did in New Jersey. I, you know, I played soccer. I did a play. And it, I, did, uh, I worked. I was a caddy. I, I did all kinds of things. It wasn't, it wasn't the most important thing. But, but I had done it. And so I said to myself, well, you did it once. You could do it again. I had no idea they were going to cast me as the lead. In fact, when I auditioned for John Proctor, I hadn't read the play. It was stupid me. And I had no idea who John Proctor was. So when they said, okay, you're John Proctor, I went, okay. And then I read the play after I was cast. and went, oh, my God, he's the lead in the play. You did you know, uh, a few more plays in high school. And then when you were going on to college, you were playing to major in what you said, poli-sci? Poli-sci, yeah. Okay. So where did, where did that um, decision come from to do poli-sci? I think I, it seemed like everyone was becoming an attorney. So I thought, okay, I'll become an attorney too. I my background was literary. I was an English major in college. I was not a theater major. And, uh, I, well, I started out in poli-sci. Then I realized I was never really going to become an, a, uh, an attorney. So I switched to English, and I graduated with an English degree. Um, but uh, when I went to college, everybody was becoming an attorney. And I didn't, I didn't know what else. I had no real interests, um, per se, and college is about finding yourself. And so I went to college to find myself. And I guess I did. Um, even though it was not my major, I was doing quite a few plays in college and out of college, too, for that matter. And uh, I, I just sort of followed those footsteps. And then, as I said, the gods were very kind to me. Fate was very kind. And, and before I, I graduated in my senior year, I was chosen to be at the Globe, and 800 people auditioned for, I believe, eight parts, and I was one of the eight. Um, and as it turned out, um, I got the best parts of the eight. Um, so fate has always been enormously good to me, and I just trust it. I just I trust it to, to take care of me. Sometimes it doesn't, but for the most part, it does. Now, you're at College of UCLA, and so what, do you, what did you take away most from your time acting at UCLA? Um, I found, uh, I had auditioned in high school, but I soon became the leading actor in high school, so there was no competition, really. Um, if I auditioned for a part, I assumed I was going to get it. Um, when I went to college, I was an English major or a poli-sci major, and I was competing with theater majors, and I was getting the parts that I wanted. So it, it, it sort of instructed me informed me that I could compete with, with other people and be successful. Um, and I, and it was a great learning experience to say, okay, I can compete with the big boys, although those guys weren't the big boys, but at that time they were. And, um, and I can, and I can be successful. So that was a great experience. Um, also in, in college, I learned about I learned about many things, most importantly about Shakespeare, and um, and both my 
acting in Shakespeare and my study of Shakespeare as an English major is, of course, the thrust of my of my career outside of acting. My my, as you know, my teaching and directing, uh, writing, uh, everything is in some way usually connected to my study of Shakespeare. And what was it? Uh, what was it that really? resonated with you or, or drew you to, I mean, I, I, I it's kind of an easy language. question, but, I, but I, yeah, the language. Okay. It, it was language. Shakespeare's language was intriguing, puzzling, enigmatic, um, frustrating. And, and, and as I began to be able to decipher that language, as I began to understand better the feelings and emotions and thoughts of these Shakespearean characters, the more I was intrigued by what I could learn from reading and performing the plays. So, you know, you, you mentioned it, and I want to get to the Old Globe in a second, but, you, you know, in terms of being eight of 800 or, you know, um, all the other things that you've gotten in your career, when you look back, do you feel like there was a confidence inherent in your auditioning or an ease? Like, I mean... There was, there was for a period of time, um, there was, uh, uh, again, the gods were good to me. When I moved to New York after San Diego, um, almost immediately I was working and, um, almost immediately I got a Broadway show uh, in, in time. I did four Broadway shows and lots of regional theater. Um, so the success rate that I was experiencing was giving me an ease um, there's always an angst when you audition, so it's not like I was totally confident. But 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 I saw that for the most part, uh, I could compete now absolutely with the big boys, and 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 uh, be successful. There have been long and many periods of time when that confidence has disappeared. There was a period of time after I moved to California from New York um, that. Uh, it, it was terrifying for me to go to auditions, and um, eventually I got over that terror, but there was a long, I would say, two-year period of time when no work came, and I was shooting myself in the foot every time I auditioned. I mean, you said you eventually got over it. Was it what kind of um, rituals or processes did you use? Because, I mean, a lot of people deal with that terror, I think, of auditioning or feeling like the people in the room are against them. Um, and uh, so to some degree, it's it's um, in, in your head. But um, how did you get through that period? I don't know. Uh, I think I think what happened was um, I had an audition for something that I didn't really care about at all. Um, although at that point, I needed money. Uh, every audition was important because we were financially strapped. But I think there was one where I just, I really didn't care and didn't want to do it. And so I, I went in with that attitude and, um, and it was successful and it turned out to be much better than I thought. Um, I will answer your question a different way. In the last five years, um, I have, I'm happy to admit that uh, on occasion I will take a, a, a quarter of an Ativan to deal with those large butterflies. And that's very helpful. Well, uh, you know, I mean, these, uh, the medication is out there for a reason. So yeah, if it, uh, if it, if it helps you and doesn't get in the way of anything else, then why not? It doesn't, it doesn't. And, and it's a, 
it's a placebo in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it probably does calm me down, but, but more than calming me down, if I, if I take that quarter of an Ativan, I think, okay, well, there I go. It'll, it, they're not going to get in the way. And so because I don't think they're going to get in the way, they don't get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. The power of placebos or, or power of suggestion can be, uh, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, it, because auditions have always been um, a scary situation, and uh, and I'm in awe of the guys who I see in the waiting rooms who don't seem to be f- fearful. Perhaps they are, and not, they're just covering, or perhaps they aren't. Um, but uh, it would be great to have that sort of nerves of steel. So, well, j- jumping back to a time when you when you did, um, you were very lucky, but I'm sure also prepared um, when you got the apprenticeship at the Old Globe. So, what was what was that program that you were getting involved in? Well, at that time, uh, the Globe Theater had as an apprenticeship, and and they hired a, a group of actors. And in the summer that I was there, there were eight of us, I believe, and we did. We played the smallest of parts. We were spirit carriers, or we had small parts, and we and we understudied. And we also did tech work. We built props and helped with the set, and um, we did whatever the theater asked us to do. The great thing was we got to work with wonderful actors and, and watch them perform and watch how they rehearsed. Um, and for me, that was an enormous education. I worked with some phenomenal actors whose work I still admire these 40, 50 years later. And then again, the God smiled on me and, and, uh, the man I was understudying left to do a TV pilot and the artistic director who, who had, um, who'd been watching my, my progress during the summer, um, was kind about saying, we want you to take over the part, two, actually three parts. And, um, and so I went on to play the comic leads for at least about a, I'd say two or three weeks, um, at the end of the summer. And, uh, it was a great learning experience. Again, uh, this time, again, I was playing with the big boys and, uh, getting my laughs and the actors that I had been in awe of all summer um, were complimenting me on my work and treating me as a peer. Um, so it, I was blessed that way. And that, that really is the secret of my success. Yes, I prepare. Yes, I have talent. Yes, I'm good at what I do. But I'm blessed with a cornucopia of luck. Well, I know I've heard this definition that um, opportunity is when luck meets preparation. That you know, yeah, I think that's in my case that's true. Um, I, I do a lot of preparation, uh, but I'm also enormously lucky. I'm also unlucky. It's not <laughs> like everything is is uh, there. There are many times where I have not been chosen, and sometimes sometimes not being chosen is better. Um, I have a, a handful of occasions where I didn't get chosen for something. And luckily for me, I wasn't chosen, and something better came along. Or, or people who had seen me prior to the project I eventually did saw me and remembered me and said, okay, we didn't use him then, but we'd like to use him now. Um, so I've come to learn that even if you don't get something, it doesn't mean that the opportunity is over. It only means it may be postponed. 
Well, yeah, I've, I've often heard, you know, the kind of the mindset for auditioning is you're not going in to get that part. You're going in to get the next audition. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, have you found have you found that to be well, it sounds like that you found that to be pretty true. I, I have found that to be true. My my career is is um, is thanks to many people who were kind enough to help me up. Many of them were casting directors who who didn't always cast me in the projects I originally came in, but would would keep calling me in. And if you're keep if you're if they're continually calling you in, if the same casting people are calling you in on a regular basis, then you know that they like your work. They're just fine trying to find the part for you. Um, they may say this is a wonderful actor, and their producers may say, "Yeah, but he's not right for this." Um, and I, I can point to dozens of casting directors who've been kind that way. Um, also, directors, directors who I've worked for and have used me um, over again. So, so you're doing, uh, you know, these lead parts in at the Globe. Uh, how long of a program was it? Was it? Just no, no. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, how long of a program was it uh, that you were apprenticing? It was just for summer. Oh, okay. It was from, uh, I was, it was from like, I would say May to Labor Day. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, at the time, there were some uh, wonderful older actors, as I've mentioned. There was also some wonderful younger actors. There was a young actor who was an apprentice, but he was, he was one step above me in the hierarchy of things. And that was Chris Reeve, who you know went on to play Superman. Of course, yeah. Um, and and Bob Hayes uh, was in my apprenticeship program with me. He went on to play the lead in Airplane um, and other things. Uh, so it was very. It was a great summer, and I worked with some phenomenal actors, and not just phenomenal actors. Um, I had the enormous honor uh, to work with Jack O'Brien, who's perhaps America's finest. Uh, theater director and it was the beginning of his career too so um, um, Jack was very kind to me over the course of many years I never worked with him again as an actor but but he was instrumental in getting me a number of auditions when I lived in New York well so when you finished up at the Globe what was your decision-making process at that point yeah well here's the story that I often tell so I'll I'll bore you the day before I was supposed to transition from my apprentice roles to the comic leads, um, I was uh, doing a performance of Mary Wives of Windsor. And in that play, as, as in my apprentice role, I was playing Bardolph, which is a very small part. And Bardolph has a change of costume in, in uh, towards the beginning of the play. And I, my first costume was held together by a string. And when I finished my last performance of the first scene, I went up to my dressing room and and sort of did this Hulk thing where I I burst all the, the threads on the costume because I'd been so ginger about making sure that nothing came apart and I uh, because I had, had been aware for weeks if not months about how flimsy the costume was. So I decided, well, I never have to wear this piece of shit again and I'm just going to rip it apart and and I did. Um, and as I'm ripping it apart and gleefully laughing about what I'm doing, um, I hear a scene on the loudspeaker uh, that I'm supposed to be in, in the costume that's now on the floor. And I realized that I'm supposed to be on stage that very moment. The, the scene that they're doing involves my character, 
and and my character, although he had very little to say in the scene, was very pivotal pivotal to the scene. I didn't know what to do, um, and uh, I I couldn't get back to my costume. It was in tatters on the floor, and uh, eventually I ran down there in my next costume. But by that time, the scene was over, and later that day, the artistic director Craig Don called me into his office and ringed me a new asshole for having missed the scene and, and told me that if he didn't need me to continue in these bigger parts, he would have fired me that day. Um, I was despondent all summer long. I had that part of the program was that each after each summer, one of the apprentices would be asked back the next year to be a, a member of an equity member of the company. Um, even long before I got the the um, promotion, I, it was obvious to everyone, or at least to me anyway, that I was the person that was going to be selected because I, I, I had the best of the apprentice roles. I was getting not great reviews by any means, but I was being mentioned in reviews and, and people were astonished that my small parts was getting noticed. And um, so I assumed I was going to be that person. And that's what I wanted, having just finished college, um, the idea of being a, a Shakespearean actor at a Shakespeare Festival seemed ideal to me. And I, it, it's what I wanted. But when uh, Craig Knoll told me that he would have fired me and I went back to my lonely apartment, I realized that uh, they were not going to hire me the next year, that that, that was out of the question. Uh, all summer long, while I was thinking the thoughts that I was going to stay in San Diego, um, there were a number of actors from New York who were all trying to convince me to move to New York. And um, when I realized that my future in the globe was over, I thought, well, maybe I should listen to all those guys and, and move to New York. So subsequent to my being at the globe, after about six months preparation to move to New York, I moved to New York and, um, and almost immediately uh, got work in regional theater. I was working in a restaurant as, as primarily as a waiter, but sometimes as a cook as well. Um, but I, I was almost immediately starting to do regional theater. And then after two regional theater gigs, um, I moved into New York City with a girlfriend. And, uh, and then I think I moved in, into New York City in October. And by the end of December of that same year, I was in a Broadway show. So did you have... Um I, well, <laughs> there's a lot I could I could talk about there. I mean, I'm I can't imagine how um, devastating that conversation from the artistic director was. I mean, I'm, not to mention like it was. A, as an actor, you already feel horrible knowing you messed up. Like no actor ever wants to go through that experience, and then to have that all come tumbling down, I'm sure was just unbelievable. But that's where my other part of my philosophy was first. Um, inspired. Yes, I had fucked up royally. It, it, it was, it decimated my plans to be a Shakespearean actor at the Globe Theater. But because I fucked up, because I made that huge mistake, uh, it took me to New York where much better things happened, including my meeting of Kitty. So, so I've come to learn when you screw up, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the world. There may be something better around the corner. This is why I say the fates take care of me. Even when I screw up badly, 
um, it, 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 it doesn't mean that's the end of the road. It just means that you're taking another path that may lead you to some better place. Okay, so so taking that path to New York and, and you're getting this the, the regional theater stuff, did you have an agent at that time? No, no, no agent. Um, I didn't have an agent until until after I did my first Broadway show, um, and then I I had primarily a commercial agent uh, who also had a theatrical department and. <laughs> That too is a matter of luck. If you want to hear that story, well, well, yeah, we can definitely uh, get to that. I'm ju- I'm curious though. Like, um, were you equity by the time you moved to New York? No, I was SAG. I was SAG. Uh, again, luck played its its part. Um, I, I went to a film audition in San Diego while I while I was working at the Globe, and uh, I had no desire to go. Just my friends were going. I said, okay, I'll go with you. Sure. And and I read and uh, and they cast me and and it's a long story which I won't go into and then they made me SAG and uh, so I was SAG but that didn't necessarily mean that that was a, that was a road into equity when I did my first regional theater job um, then I became equity because I had done a regional theater job okay and so those were just casting notices that uh, you had heard about or, or friends knew about and. So you guys just went on these auditions for for regional theater? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I just heard about the auditions and I went. There was no agent submitting me. No, and I would go in and they would ask for a classical and a modern um, audition, and I would I had two up my sleeve that were very good, and and they got me work. Which uh, what were the two pieces? Uh, one was from a Soroyan play called Hello Out There. That was my modern piece. And then one was from Henry VI, Part Three. Uh, characters Richard of Gloucester. Okay, great. Maybe we'll uh, get to that a little bit later. So, so the Broadway play I, I want to talk about because that was uh, the Three Penny Opera, right? Right, that's right. And so that was just another audition that you just went on, no agent, and um, was that was that the process for auditioning for that show? Uh, yes and no. So uh, I moved to New York. Um, and regional theaters uh, had auditions, and I wrote to the public theater, uh, Joe Papp's public theater, and said I'd like to audition. And uh, I was answered by the casting director. He set up an appointment, and uh, he said I would like for you to come in and do one classical monologue for us. And I, I was prepared to do my Richard Gloucester uh, piece. And when I do that piece, I, I sort of take on a limp and I, uh, I appear to be hunchbacked and my arm is, uh, my right arm is, it appears to be shorter than my left arm. Um, and it's a physical transformation along with um, a notable emotional attachment to the, to the lines in the character. So I'm sitting in the hallway waiting for my audition at the public theater and um and going over my lines for for Richard of Gloucester, and and the, the casting director comes out and says, "Welcome." And he is he has all these physical braces on his legs and arms and back because he is indeed a hunchback. And I, being in my mid or late twenties, think uh, I can't do my Richard the Third because. Because uh, 
because I will look like him and he may be offended by my physicalization. Right, sure. And um, so I'm walking into the room thinking as fast as I can, I'm, I can't do the piece that I want to do. Um, so we get into the room. He asked me, what is it I'm going to do? And I, because in high school I had done um, Claudius from Hamlet, I said, I'm going to do that. And I did it. And he was very taken with it. <laughs> and then he said to me, do you have anything else? Hmm. And I looked at him and I thought, I can't do Richard III. No. Um, so I did Puck instead. And uh, he was very taken with that. Um, very complimentary. And, and then he said, do you have anything else? And for a moment I thought, well, I could do my best piece, which is Richard of Gloucester, but I was too intimidated at that point and said no. So after that, about two months later, uh, he brought me in for uh, the director and the producer for Three Penny Opera. And it wasn't a reading because we didn't have anything to say, really. And uh, it was an improv. And I did that. And then they brought me in for a second improv uh, soon after. And that's how I got Three Penny Opera. And I was cast in the chorus. Uh, again, the gods were looking after me because I was cast in the chorus. Now, when you picture chorus in your mind, you think that's got to be somebody who sings and dances, which I don't do. Um, but we were in the chorus. And we did do a minuscule amount of singing, really nothing at all. Our primary purpose was to look bizarre and to move furniture, which I was very capable and expert at doing. And uh, so they hired me for that. And then again, like at the Globe, everybody had an understudy position that was in the chorus. Uh, but I was the only person whose, whose people that I was understudying moved on, and I took over the roles. Nobody else in the chorus did that. Uh, except for me. So again, uh, that's just fate um, and luck uh, looking after me. Uh, it does sound like a very, yeah, I mean, it, the more you describe it, it does sound like there is a kind of uh, a divine intervention to some degree uh, yeah. in your career. Now, now that production, uh, at least it opened with uh, Raul Julia in the lead role. That's right. Um, what and you know he was uh, I, I guess kind of a known actor uh, by that point. He'd already been doing a lot of stuff um, in New York. Uh, did you take anything away specifically from watching him work or or you know others in that no, cast? Not so much from Raúl because Raúl's performance, which was stupendous, was very um, what's the word? It, 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 our director was a master puppeteer and. Richard Foreman, and he had Raoul doing all these stylized things that were were unique to this production. Raoul would never move the way he, he moved on stage in this production. He would never speak the way. It, it was all very unique, very stylized, and, and, and right on the money. Richard's uh, vision of the play was was stupendous, but he had, he had Raoul and some of the others doing very idiosyncratic things. So I didn't really learn from Raoul. However, there were other people, Elizabeth Wilson, for instance, um, or, uh, or David Sabin. Um, those people I watched and, and learned from. There wasn't anything that I thought that I could learn from Raoul, not because he wasn't worth watching, but because he was just so 
idiosyncratic. His acting was was very Brechtian, if we can call it that, and uh, and I wasn't all that interested in becoming a Brechtian actor. Well, you know, one of the things that, as you're describing it, you know, I think of is, and and I think I have a limitation in myself to some degree, is that willingness to be able to do anything, or at least to try anything. Um, Mm -hmm. even if you might think it's, even if you disagree with the director or you think it's silly or or whatever like that. But uh, I mean, that, that does sound like at least to some degree, an actor, Raul in Raul's case, um, just being willing to totally commit himself to, to trying this and seeing what, you know, what comes out of it. Yes. And he was very, he was, that there was great rebellion in the first two and a half weeks of rehearsal. The actors did not want to do what Richard Foreman asked them to do, uh, especially the older actors. They, they, they were angry. Um, but eventually they came around and the production, which in during previews looked like a major disaster, um, opened to glorious reviews and we ran for a year and a half. So, Yes, Raul did that, and, and yes, everybody eventually did do that. But um, but there was great reluctance uh, on the part of the actors, especially the older actors. Um, but they eventually came around. Richard was was very very, if I can use this term, avant garde, mm-hmm. and has always been avant garde. If you look up avant garde in the theater, you're going to find Richard Foreman. Um, um, but they eventually came round, and and uh, that's one of the things I learned. You've been talking about Raúl Julia, and I said I didn't really learn much from Raúl. However, his replacement was a man named Phil Bosco. Oh, sure. And I owe a great deal, not only from Three Penny, but from the next play we did together, St. Joan. I, I probably learned more about being an actor and acting from Phil Bosco, Raúl's replacement. Uh, than from any other actor I've ever been with. How how so? Um, it's not that I learned so much during Three Penny, because again, it was a very stylistic thing. But when Phil and I went on to our next Broadway shows, which we were both in in St. Joan with uh, with Lynn Redgrave, um, I watched almost every night one particular long scene that Phil and, and two other wonderful actors were in. Uh, and it was a master's class in doing Shaw. And I I sucked up everything I could from those three actors, primarily from Phil. And aside from that, um, Phil, who sort of took me under his wing in St. Joan, um, I learned more about what it means to be an ensemble actor and to be the lead, because he was the lead, the lead in... Um, a, Lynn was the lead. She was St. Joan. But the male lead was Bill Bosco. Um, And to to learn about community, about sharing, about supportiveness, about about humility, about um, not being humble. Um, Phil was my role model for how to become the type of actor I wanted to become. Mm. And he was, he had more humanity towards me who was a total unknown and just a kid, you know, lurking about in his shadows. Um, and he was very, very, very kind and very supportive. And although he never 
said, okay, kid, you got to learn this, you got to learn it. He never said anything like that. Just simply by my watching him continually, practically for about a year, um, I, I learned a lot of how I approach other actors, how I approach the business, how I approach a lot of stuff because of those that early training from Phil Bosco. That yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it sounds like it it almost kind of uh, rivals the the summer you did at the Globe. And I mean, and it's amazing when you can come across these people who and and Armin. I don't want to make you you know ba- uh, too red in the face, but uh, you know, I would say you are someone like that for me. Um, you know, that, uh, yeah, no, when, when I've taken class with you or just observed you, it's just, you've been so, you've been so giving and so warm and especially with the teaching too, which we we can talk about, but, um, it, it is really wonderful when, you know, there is kind of one person you can point to that has really had such a, an impact on your career. Um, and so when you, when you're talking about Phil and, and, you know, the work he did with Shaw is the, you know, what was, if you could distill it down or, or if there were a couple things that you. Sure. Re- I, can, I can't easily do that because I, because I watched it night after night. Um, he, he had a way of, of technically speaking, he had an incredible mastery of parentheticalizing things hmm. so that he would make you understand this is the thrust of the sentence and then he would parentheticalize some of the Shavian adjuncts that are attached to the sentence. Um, and he had this way of speaking Shaw that was both musical and informative. It, it always led you to the, to the core of what was being said. And in rehearsal, Phil asked these amazing questions about what the lines meant and, and always, always was totally open to getting whatever the other actors in the scene were bringing to him. He would go through the script and, and reassure himself of the choices that he had made and, and continually searched for new choices, um, which is something that uh, he taught me and which I continue to do, which is that your, your research process is not over when the show opens. You continue to look for any nuggets of gold that you can find uh, either in performance or in the script. Uh, but his, he also had this panache that was perfectly Shavian. And um, when I read plays that, uh, that are Shavian, uh, I often hear Phil's voice in my head when I'm reading the line. Hmm. Um, all right. So I want to, I want to potentially make a little bit of a leap here and, you know, I, I'm just curious, did Phil fulfill any kind of like fatherly role in your life? I mean, I know your parents got divorced. Did you have? A- I, I don't think fatherly, but more teacher like okay. he was a mentor. Um, he 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 was fatherly in the sense that he was kind to me and invited me to things that uh, small things. There weren't a lot of them, but that uh, uh <laughs> that perhaps I wouldn't have been invited to. I remember uh, they used to play poker between shows on Saturday and, and uh, he would, I would say, you know, Phil, I'd like to play poker. And he'd go, no, Armin, you can't play. You need to save your money. <laughs> um, so I guess in that sense, he was fatherly. Um, and he never called me Armin, by the way. Uh, it, it's one of the great pleasures of my life. 
um, Phil, who I'd worked shoulder to shoulder, literally shoulder to shoulder for, for an entire year between two plays, Three Penny and St. John, never, ever, ever called me Armin. Always, always called me Norman. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and I'm, I'm just gratified by that because it, 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 it was a mistake in the beginning, but it was a sign of affection that he, he never changed over from Armin to Norman or Norman to Armin. Sure, sure. Uh, he was, uh, and, and, he, and a lot of actors my age who lived in New York thought of Phil Bosco as a god. The, although he's not known to the general public, um, whenever there was a Shavian play done on Broadway or off-Broadway, Phil was invariably the lead because he was just so good at it. And he had, he was the actor's actor. He had, he had worked in regional theaters across the country, not across the country, in the East Coast primarily. Um, and uh, he didn't do much film or TV because I think it's because he had a fear of flying and he didn't want to get in a plane to come to Hollywood. Hmm. When films were shot in New York, half the time he would be in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say... People even of my generation, I probably more know him from, you know, the the film and TV work he did. And it, it is almost, um, well, I don't know if I don't know if sad is the right word, but y- you wish there were a way to, you know, go back and watch these things. But because, you know, someone with that depth of talent, um, you know, his his medium was clearly theater. Um, it was. But that's it was indeed. And uh, and he worked constantly in it. Um, and he gave some performances that were just brilliant. And the curse and, and blessing of the theater is that only the people in the room that night have the memories, and, and that's it. Nobody else does. Um, and that's, as I said, both a curse and a blessing. Sure. So, all right. Well, I, I could talk to you another four hours just about your time in New York, but you said I wanted to get a, to a little bit of the TV and film work you've done, but you said you had a story about commercials related maybe to your commercial agent. Oh yeah, well, it's actually still in New York, but um, again, luck, luck. Um, the union equity used to require agents to see new actors once a month. As I remember, it was a Wednesday, and uh, I was looking for a commercial agent, and I knew that uh, one particular agent had open hours because of the union requirement. So I went in and, and met with um, with one of the two partners. His name was Arnie. And, uh, I was there for about, I don't know, a minute at the most. It was quite obvious. This was not going well. He didn't want to be there. He was only required to be there because the agents, because the union had required him. He had um, no desire to see me or anyone else for that matter. So, uh, I left not thinking anything would come of it. About six weeks later, I got a phone call from that office, um, saying, uh, could you come in and meet the other agents in the office? Uh, which I did. And uh, there were three women. And um, it went very well. I can be very charming when I want to be. And they decided to sign me on. So that was how I got my first commercial agent. And they sort of also had a theatrical uh, part of their office as well. Several years later, uh, when I'd been there for a while, I asked one of the agents, um, how did I, how did, why did they call me in six weeks later when obviously the initial meeting was so poor? So here's luck. Uh, I happened to ask the right agent, 
because when I came in for that initial meeting, she, at that time, she was sitting at the front door as a receptionist <clears throat> and was an agent wannabe. And she told me this story. And she said, on that day that I came in, and, and probably another dozen or two dozen people came in, and Arnie, the big agent partner, um, made two piles. There was a large pile of people he never wanted to see again. And there was one or two people that in a small pile that, um, that he said, yes, maybe we should see them again. And the lady's name was Joanne, Joanne Halpin. She now is a manager here in Los Angeles. And Joanne said that afternoon, somebody came in and a big blast of wind came in through the door. And your picture, Armin, fell to the floor. I didn't know which pile it belonged to. So I just put you in the small pile. That's just luck. Well, you know, it, I, I agree. And I'm going to have to, I, I want to reinforce another thing that you've been talking about is preparation. If you weren't prepared, I think when they called you in six weeks later, you know, if you weren't a, uh, you know, someone that had the goods, so to speak, um, it might have gone very differently. So I, I, I do want to just just for people listening, kind of reinforce that it's not, you know, you're not just someone who, uh, you know, strolls down the street and, you know, jobs are thrown at you. I mean, you do you do the work. And I know that uh, personally, too. It, it's true. I do the work, but you know, uh, I'd be a fool. Uh, no, there, yeah, there has been some kind of helping hand, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not that I believe. I'm not religious mm -hmm. by any means. I I just think I'm lucky, and whatever luck is, I seem to have a great reservoir of it. And 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 and, and I will say, in juxtaposition to that luck, um. I am a very specific looking person. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am not your normal looking actor. When I first started out long before I went to college and, um, or while I was in college, actually, um, my first teacher said, Armin, you're, you're never going to be on TV and film. You just don't look like anything on TV. So that should not be your, your focus. And she said, theater should be your focus. Um, so I, I always knew, I had the mirror as well to tell me, that I was unique and different and, um, and, and, and not anything that you would say was Hollywood. So um, I've, I've, I bounced between those two understandings of myself. The first, that I'm, I'm hard to cast, and two, that I'm very lucky. Well... So to jump off of that, you said when you moved back from New York to Los Angeles, that was, was that the challenging period for auditioning? Yeah, because in New York, I had, in a, in a matter of eight years, um, progressed up the ladder. I had four Broadway shows, done a lot of regional theater. I was in the mix with all the best people in New York. I, I had, I had achieved uh, uh, more than a modicum of success and, and uh, was what you call a working actor. When I moved to Hollywood, uh, and that was, wasn't was supposed to be a move in the beginning, it was just supposed to be a visit, uh, but when it extended itself and, and became two years, um, uh, nothing was happening, and I was at the bottom of the hierarchy. I, I, was, um, I was an unemployed actor in Hollywood where they didn't care tuppence about what regional theater work you had done or, or what Broadway work you had done. Um, 
as as a casting director once said to me, uh, "Oh, Armin, you're an actor, but we don't need an actor. We just need somebody to play this part." Um, and and uh, I was despondent about my lack of success. And thankfully, uh, at that point, a, a number of my commercials that I had shot in New York, and some that I had done in the in L.A. as well, um, were playing, and so we were able to, you know keep from being evicted from where we were living, but it was close. It was very close. And and Uh, while you were waiting for, you know, the, the new work to come in, were you taking classes or doing plays or how were you just kind of keeping yourself? I was doing plays. There was, I was working at the victory theater, which had just opened. My friends from UCLA were running the victory theater. They still are. And, um, so I did plays at the victory. Um, I, I had a, some success in, in regional theater. So um, while I was living in L.A., not getting any foothold in the movie or TV business, I was called out to work at the Guthrie and one or two other regional theaters because I had made connections there. So I was starving in L.A., but but I still had connections in the theater world, uh, which which helped. So I, I wasn't destitute, but I but if my focus and my thrust was to get work in TV and film, it wasn't happening for the longest period of time. When was it that um, things started to turn around in Los Angeles that you felt like, okay, this this is you know the right decision or this has been the right move? Well, it wasn't until really, really until I was 40. Um, I had made a pact with myself that when I got to be 40, I would look at my career, look at myself, look at my financial situation um, and say, should I stay with this career or should I move on to something else? I didn't know what I would move on to, but I knew that at 40, if I wasn't where I wanted to be, that I needed to move on. Now, I'd already had, as I said, success in the theater, but, but I was living in L.A. now. And after... Many years at 40, I, I realized that it was time to move on, that this was not working, and I, I didn't want to live hand-to-mouth for the rest of my life. Didn't want to do that for myself. Certainly didn't want to do that for my wife. And then uh, out of the blue, no audition. And I wasn't the type of actor who got work without auditions. But without an audition, one day the agent called and said, you've been hired to do a show called Brooklyn Bridge. And and I said, okay, great. And that turned out to be a recurring character. I didn't know that when I was first hired, but it did turn out to be a recurring character. And that reinvigorated my desire to continue. And then really very shortly after, I think, I don't know, about six or seven episodes after Brooklyn Bridge is when uh, they held the auditions for Deep Space Nine. And we know what happened after that. So. When when you landed uh, Quark, I mean it's a it's a very you know unique character in, in terms of his background and, and all that. But then just the makeup, the prosthetics. What what did you? Was there anything that developed in terms of your acting process that was informed by playing that character? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, up until then, I'm, I'm about forty at this time. Um, I was still somewhat of a of a reticent person, um, very bashful, very insecure. Um, 
fully aware of my successes in the theater, very proud of them, and they had taught me a great deal, but still sort of a reticent person. Um, when I put on the makeup and the teeth and, um, and got paid as well as I did, my confidence exponentially rose. And my ability to, to, to be forthcoming, both as a person and as a performer, uh, just expanded tr tremendously. So that's what the role did for me. It gave me a confidence and an expansiveness that I had never had before. And, uh, and I grew to like it, and people expected it of me, and so uh, I became much, much more extroverted than I had ever been when I was 40. Hmm. So after you got Quark, when did teaching come in? Because obviously that, you know, ah. that was, it didn't sound like it was part of it up to that point. It was actually. Oh, okay. My first recurring part in my mid, in my mid thirties was for a show called Beauty and the Beast. And I played a character called Pascal. And that was the first time ever that, uh, I had been a recurring guest star on a TV show. Uh, many wonderful things happened while I was doing that show, in, including a confidence and, a, and a, somewhat of a financial security, somewhat, because recurring doesn't mean much. Um, but one of the nice things was <clears throat> on the show was another recurring character named Ellen Gear, who runs the Theatric and Botanicum. And she came up to me one day while we were working together on the set and said, how would you like to come to the theatricum and teach? And I said, I, I don't teach. She said, but we'd had conversations about Shakespeare. And she said, I think you could. I think you could teach. I think, you know, you should try it. So um, I went down to theatricum and taught and, and uh, began to codify some of my thoughts about Shakespeare and Shakespearean acting. And I taught for theatricum, still teach for theatricum. So it's been 30 years or so that I've been teaching at theatricum. And because I was teaching at the theatricum, it, uh, it branched out and I, I taught a little at the victory. I of course teach at our theater at Antius. Um, I, I've taught in a number of different places now because of the confidence I got about teaching that I got from Ellen in the theatricum. Um, and now, as as you know, I now teach at USC as the as the professor of Shakespeare for the undergraduates. Well, to actually uh, go from there, I, I would love to jump into you know just looking at um, a, a portion of the text from from Henry the Sixth, Part Three, the Richard of Gloucester speech um, that you had referenced earlier that you uh, used as a monologue um, earlier, and and I was wondering if you could just you know highlight how you uh, approach this speech in particular and, and maybe some of the ideas that you use in terms of, uh, you know, what you teach for Shakespeare and then um, what you use personally. Well, one of the things I teach, uh, the, the thrust of my teaching in Shakespeare is a, a system of study that Shakespeare himself, himself studied and all of his contemporaries studied and, and people for millennium study. It's called rhetoric and it's the way you put language together to form arguments in order to convince people of the rightness of an idea or of an action. And the, one of the things about rhetoric is that y you say things in a sort of interesting way, 
in order to catch people's attention and to make them remember. For instance, um, you're perhaps too young to have heard it originally, but the, the phrase that Kennedy used still lives and rings through people's minds, which is, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that's a rhetorical piece. Why is it rhetorical? Because there's a twist in the middle, and that's part of rhetoric. And also, there's the repetition of, of words. Ask, ask not is, 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 is re- echoed in, ask, in the second part of the, of the phrase, ask. That's called antithesis and also what I call juxtaposition. So in a lot of Shakespeare, there are these juxtapositions, antithetical. The most famous antithetical in Shakespeare is to be or not to be. That's an antithetical. Either you are to be or you aren't not to be. Um, and and that's, that's littered throughout my audition speech. Um, there is also classical references in the, in the course of my, my speech. Um, all of those have to be explored, investigated, understood. And, and you are, you are, all of that is material in order to make an argument, to make a supposition. And then when you've made the conclusion of that supposition, you then progress on from there. That's what my audition speech is about. There are a number of suppositions that come to a conclusion, and then having made that conclusion, you, you find a, a course of action. Um, so that's what I teach, and, and that's what's in the speech. Okay, so, and just for context, uh, this is... It's late in the play of Henry VI, Part 3. Yeah. Okay, and um, it, it, it is a quite a long speech. Where would you usually start it for your monologue? I started it in the middle. Somewhere in the middle, uh, it starts with, well, say there is no kingdom then for Richard. And that's the supposition. Well, suppose I can't get what I want. And then um, there are a lot of suppositions made, and eventually you come to a conclusion. It starts there, and I, and I did some judicious cutting so that it, it lasted no more than, I think, two minutes at the most. And, um, and I've you know worked on it. I've had revelations about the speech over the course of my lifetime. But usually when I do it, as an audition, and I don't have to do it that often anymore. But when I do it, um, I usually find something new in the speech, and that's the great thing about Shakespeare—you always find something new. And do you do you enjoy teaching Shakespeare more, or acting, or directing? What what? Uh... I actually prefer teaching it more, um, because there's such joy in me when I see a student who knew nothing about rhetoric before where a line made no sense before when they learn the principles of rhetoric and they put the acting techniques that go with the rhetoric together with the understanding of rhetoric. And all of a sudden the light goes off in their head and they go, Oh, I see. I got it. I understand that to me is as precious as the finest Christmas gift that you can get. Um, It is, it is why I teach is to see that light go off um, to see someone who didn't understand something before understand it now and to become a better actor because of their understanding of this acting technique. Now, I remember when, when we first talked about this in another call about this piece, you mentioned there was, you could kind of relate to the insecurity and anger in Richard. Right. 
the rhetoric is is what I've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But what drew me to the piece is the insecurity and the and the self loathing uh, that is intrinsic in the piece, and that's what drew me to the piece. Uh, I it, it it's uh, it, it was part and parcel of my youth of my insecurity before um, before my successes, and I can look back on that and still remember it. Um, and so it will fuel my audition when I do it. But um, it's no longer um, as the fire doesn't burn as bright as it used to. But but you're saying you had that same kind of that same kind of self loathing as a kid, or no? But I can draw upon my old feeling about that. Uh, as I said, about the time. I would say somewhere in my late 30s, uh, at 40, um, there was probably quite a bit of that still hanging around. But my life took such a turn for the better um, as far as career and finances and uh, security that um, and and also just an understanding of of who I am um, and how I fit into the jigsaw puzzle of life, community, friendships. Um, I, that self-loathing, I believe, is it's still with me a little, but 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 very tiny compared to how large it loomed uh, when I was in my late thirties and at a forty. Hmm. Well, would you be comfortable sharing a little bit of the piece with us? Sure. Yeah, I can, I can probably, if I haven't forgotten it, I think I can give you all of it. Okay. Um, so it, it goes a, a little like this. Well. Say there is no kingdom, then, for Richard. What other pleasures can the world afford? I'll make my heaven in a lady's lap and deck my body in gay ornaments and witch sweet ladies with my words and looks. Why, love forswore me in my mother's womb. She did corrupt frail nature with some bribe to shrink mine arm up like a withered shrub to make an envious mountain on my back with its deformity to mock my body, to shape my legs of an unequal size, to disproportion me in every part, like... like to a chaos. And am I then a man to be beloved? Huh? Then, since this earth affords no joy to me, I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown. And yet, I know not how to get the crown. For many lives stand between me and home. Why, I can smile and murder whilst I smile and cry content to that which grieves my heart. I can add colors to the chameleon change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavel to school. Can I do this? And cannot get a crown? Tut, were it further off, I will pluck it down. And that's that. Thank you very much, Armin. That was great. You know, what uh, What really strikes me about this speech, and, and so many like this in Shakespeare's writing, is how the character works through this, you know, in the moment with the audience. Right. That, that he, he, you know, he doesn't come decided. Um, 
it's it's figuring out in the moment what's what he's going to do next, what he's go, what's going to happen. It is it is what I mentioned before, and what I'll mention again is called the argument. You 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 figure it out. You make an argument, and either you like where the argument is going, and you form a course of action, or you don't like it, and uh, you look for a different argument. But but. Right. You don't you don't come with an answer. You come with a supposition and then you you work it through. You you work you work through the the permutations until you come to some conclusion. Mm. Well, uh taking Richard's last line, I, I would say with all of your uh your good fortune you, you have plucked down that crown, though not through such uh, uh deceitful means. I would agree with you, yes. <laughs> well, I just have a, a few more kind of rapid-fire questions, though your answers don't have to be uh, rapid-fire. Sure. Is there anything about being an actor that you really wished you had learned earlier? Yes, I wish I had asked for help earlier. I, I wish I had learned to say, you know what, uh, I, 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 I don't know how to get to this audition or to get seen for this project or or to get seen by this agent or that director or whatever. And when I knew that there were people who knew other people within the six degrees of separation, um, I never asked for help. And in hindsight, that was a mistake. I, I wish that I had asked for help. Yeah, I mean, it's such a big factor, I think, as you mature, and that doesn't necessarily need to mean get older, but, you know, whenever that kind of drops in, that you realize there is there I, I mean you are even one example uh just with this uh interview you know i'm i'm asking for your help of uh hey i'd like to do this thing and we you know are you open to it so i mean and and with this project for me like there's a lot of other people i'm asking for help from uh, in varying degrees so i think it is really not not overrated but maybe underappreciated uh how important and necessary asking for help can be Really, exactly right. And the worst thing that can happen, really, is that people say no. Right. So you're still you're back where you were before. You, all it is is someone said no. That that's all you're risking, really. And and most of the time, as I'm doing for you, you people say yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. It it is true. It's uh, you can make uh, you know, make a mountain out of a molehill just trying, you know, thinking of asking someone and getting them indebted to you. But uh, for the most part, it's it's uh, you know probably not a big deal to the other person. Not as big of a deal as you're making it in your head. Right. So, you know, I know we've talked a lot about luck and, and things like that, but I, I am really curious in, in your opinion, your belief, why why do you think you have worked so much, you know, both personally and, and professionally? Yeah, I'm very talented. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very talented. Uh, I'm very knowledgeable and I'm very charming. And I believe those qualities have made uh, made me successful. Um, I don't make enemies. Uh, I'm I'm usually very friendly, uh, and and I'm very talented. And, and I've come to learn that. And and my success has made me even more talented because uh, because I, I will follow my star uh, where it takes me, and, and I don't worry so much about failure anymore. So when you're not working. How do you spend your day? Are there? I teach. Okay. I teach. I teach. I teach or I read. 
And I'm reading for my teaching. Um, almost invariably, I'm reading something that's 400 years old right now. <laughs> I'm reading an essay called Euphuse, uh, E-U-P-H-U-E-S. Uh, it was written by John Lilly, who was a predecessor to Shakespeare. So I'm reading Euphuse and then how it impinges upon Love's Labor's Lost and other mm. plays. Armin, what is one personal accomplishment and one professional accomplishment that you're most proud of? My personal accomplishment, that's the easiest of all, uh, meeting and marrying and falling in love with Kitty Swink. That, that's, uh, that's absolutely my number one success. M- more than my career, my happiness is, uh, is that. And so I'm, I'm, that's number one, far and away. Number one, number two, number three, <laughs> number four, all of them. Um, uh, success in career, um, one would have to say Star Trek. Um, although there are a lot of roles I've done on the stage that I feel are artistically comparable to what I did in Star Trek. Star Trek, the, the combination of my work and the writers and the directors, um, uh, I did some really important stuff, but it wasn't just me. It was everybody as a group did it together. Um, but there are shows, plays primarily where I've done performances and thought, um, yeah, that's one I can be proud well, of. Yeah. I mean, I know you, uh, you want me to well, yeah, one? I know you've done very well with uh, the seafarer in recent years and then King playing the fool and King Lear. Right, yeah. right. And, and the play I just finished that I did for a number of years, uh, called discord where I played Tolstoy. Um, that was a very successful thing for me. Um, there, there, are, there are a number of shows where I went, okay, uh, I got close to being Phil Bosco at, this, at that point. I, I'm sure he's very proud of his Norman. I, I think he is. He, at least uh, he told me so. He wrote me a, a card, uh, which I won't bore anybody with, but uh, there was a story behind that as well. But he wrote me a card several years ago, and he was very proud of it. Oh, good. Um, so you are, t- you know, you mentioned you're teaching at the college level right now. What you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things you're you're sharing with them, uh, specifically about Shakespeare. But if you had to give uh, some advice to a smart, driven college student, you know, who's about to graduate and enter the real world and thinks wants to go into the business, what what would you share with them? Well, I have done that, and this is what I've told them: do three things for your career a day. Uh, uh, contact someone, uh, read a play, go to a class, uh, check the auditions. Um, talk to friends, uh, do three things for your career. Think of it as a business and, and approach it as a business. And if you do that, um, luck will, will help you. But as you said, uh, luck will take you only so far. You have to be prepared. So, um, but you can't be prepared unless you get the opportunity. So doing three things a day should cover all bases. Hmm. Is, is there anything that you've heard uh, as, you know, quote unquote advice that you would offer people should ignore? Yeah, I would ignore any advice that said, don't do something. If you're starting out in your career, oh, don't be an extra. Don't, uh, don't take a small part. Uh, don't uh, go into commercials. I've heard all those things. And that's all to me, antithetical to success. You, you should, you should do all those things because you never know what thing or person for that matter that you encounter doing that small thing um, may branch out to be a much larger, beneficial, profitable thing. And and what would you tell your 25-year-old self? Oh, don't be so down on yourself. Do you think the 25-year-old Armin would listen? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
Uh, it's a daunting career to go to become an actor. Yeah. It's daunting. Yeah. There's nothing but obstacles in the way. Um, I don't think anything I ever heard at 25 ameliorated that huge mountain ahead of me. All I knew was, I don't know what's going to happen. I know I have to climb this mountain, but I don't know how far I get. I don't know if I'll fall off the mountain, um, but I know I have to do it, but it's still daunting. And, and, and there's so much rejection involved. Um, I, I think, and, and especially in the beginning, there's so much rejection. It's hard to get past all that rejection. Yeah, it re- it really is. Um, and, and I think, well, I mean, I have my own guesses in terms of, uh, you know, support system or, or personal belief or, or whatever. But um, what did you find was most helpful in getting through all that rejection? Faith in myself, although that was sometimes uh, quite weak. But I would say faith that something would show up. And in my case, it usually did. But faith in oneself, yeah. I think that's the correct answer. Also, I had the support of friends and, and loved ones. Um, in my later life, m- m- you know, my wife was an incredible support. And before Kitty appeared, there were other people who, who were kind and were supportive. Well, um, what are you excited about right now? I mean, you've had so much success in your career, and, and you, you know, it, as you've mentioned, you have a wonderful personal life as well. But uh, what, what's really exciting you now? Teaching and the, the uh, maintenance and growth of Antaeus to see the theater that I helped nurture, to see that and to see the next generation of actors coming out of that theater, um, moving on to the successes that myself and my friends have had, that's exciting. Um, and, as, and to watch my students grow and, and, and learn and become better actors, that's exciting. Well, Armin, I want to thank you so much. It's, you've been just so gracious and open, and uh, it's just been such a pleasure to get to know you even better. Well, thank you, Nathan. Anytime. It's always been a pleasure. I'm a little uh, gobsmacked at, at uh, how um, unhumble I was, but that's what you were looking for. So, <laughs> I, I was looking for the real deal, uh, Armin Shimmerman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, th- yeah, thanks, Armin. It's been, it's been really great to talk. I, I really appreciate it. We will talk soon. Bye-bye now. Hey, guys. It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments, and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WAJourney on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to check out freemeditationcourse.com. Sign up right now to start making your life easier, calmer, and more enjoyable. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>